the world's capacity for exhibition on truth and capital. Ridiculing the museum means really visiting the museum. It is time for us seriously to ridicule the museum and observe the origins of the process by which the world is made into a museum. What causes modern societies to be flooded with institutions for presenting finished things from bygone work? What is responsible for the results of our ancestors' work weighing on us today, quote-unquote, like a nightmare on the brains of the living? This is no different from Karl Marx's statement about the, quote-unquote, tradition of all the dead generations. Why is it necessary that the sum of values created by all previous producers continues to be exploited as if it were global capital? In short, how did the remains of the past come to cause this massive pollution of the present? Making the world into a museum is a result of the capitalist cultural revolution that increasingly entangled local civilizations in the adventure of synchronization from the 18th century onwards. The result of the worldwide spread of capital is that all the traditional communities in which people live together in Europe and in other continents, are breaking their ties to the legacies of their ancestors, in other words, their dead. Capital synchronises the world by giving nearly unconditional priority everywhere to exchange with foreign people who live contemporaneously with us, rather than to the bonds with one's own deceased ancestors and their internalised voices. The ancestors may still speak their languages beyond the grave and perpetually repeat their basic statements about the world and its order, and their descendants will probably still be mindful of the voices and remain bound to the world of their origin through these voices. But the voices of the past are losing their former monopoly and becoming increasingly historical, mediated and relativised. They are being drowned out by a new standardised world language that is only interested in discussing topical and contemporary things. At the same time, things can only come into the world market wherever the world language, money, relates everything to everything else. It is solely through capital that synchronous relationships triumph over the traditional bonds people have with their origins. The present system of exchange actively suppresses forms of life based on the past. Wherever that occurs, strangers who are living in the same period become more important than one's own dead follows that local cultures allied to the world market become less tied to their traditional ways of being and increasingly oriented to remote partners who live in our own times. In cultural terms, the synchronization of the world through capital produces two new phenomena, the historicizing museum and the topical exhibition. Both realise a new idea of the world, or more precisely, a new form of presentation and summary of the world as the epitome of values. Museums and exhibitions gather together objects of value in human culture at special collection sites and present them for collective evaluation. Just as world historiography and the lexical encyclopedia were the main literary media for synchronising the world from the 18th century onwards, In the 19th century, the Museum of Culture and the World's Fair were inexorably established as the two most powerful concepts for presenting the values of the world. The museum was erected as a temple of value, and the World's Fair as the World Emporium. In both cases, the idea of the world as exhibitable, as something that could be exhibited, depended directly on the exploitation of values. 
The term world in itself is already seen here as the embodiment of achievements, works and values deriving from human labour, and its presentation or visibility assumes that an audience of people who are thirsting for values and eager for acquisitions is prepared to recognise and welcome these objects. This audience can evolve as an audience of buyers and viewers through the very fact that the objects come into the market and enter the museum. In this context, the notorious remark of the French citizen king Louis-Philippe, enrichissez vous is not just a motto for the bourgeoisie of yesteryear. It contains a museological confession of the age that believes in the equivalence of works and values. Once the world has been synchronised by universal exploitation, the unification of values in the museum and in the world's sphere follows of its own accord. In the age of exploitation of values, the relationship to past life often becomes abstract. Although value arises mainly through the expenditure of living labour for the benefit of exchangeable products, we seldom see the past of the product itself, the living atmosphere of the environment in which it was produced, and the amount of artistry and effort that went into it. The product's quote-unquote ancestry plays a lesser role in its exchange value. To some extent, value is abstract past, neutralised effort, homogenised labour, the form of value of the life products ensures that the legacies of previous producers are transferred to us without making us feel that we have any special obligations to them. In the age of value, the dead are less likely to consign substantial traditions to us than to leave us with movable, convertible property. If we talk about an inheritance, we inevitably ask how much rather than what. From this perspective, Marx's remark that the revolution of the 19th century has to let the dead bury their dead in order to arrive at its own content is factually accurate and linguistically revealing. Marx offers different formulas for the content of this revolution. First, the accelerated power of motion of capitalist nations. Then, unchaining and establishing of modern bourgeois society and its resulting socialist society. And finally, social revolution and reformation of the world through the proletariat that produces everything. Looking back at the Marxist era, we must say that it makes more sense to us to describe the 19th century revolution as the establishment of universal exploitation and processing of the world. This process, in fact, can only continue successfully if we let the dead bury their dead so that we can be free for our present-day possessions and obsessions. Wealth. Topicality. Events. The universal revolution consists of cutting ties in all directions to the legacies of our own dead and thus ending the possession of living beings by their ancestors. The synchronisation of all living people and things in the common age of the society of universal barter involves the project of splitting off the world as a totality from its earlier epochs and giving it a fresh start as a big company for the whole of society. As a society of the world market. As a factory of humankind. For the first time the spirit of production dares to aim for a definitive victory of present day life over the addiction to past life. Producing and exchanging becomes messianic. The goal is nothing less than to redeem the living from the weight of the quote-unquote tradition of all dead generations.
This redemption must fail, however, for one main reason. The synchronised world of capitals remains tied just as closely to dead persons and things as the unsynchronised local worlds of tradition were. Value merely brings the modernisation of the dead with it because it is past production, abstract legacy, neutralised tradition. Since the 19th century, there has not just been, quote-unquote, labour as such, labour sans phrase, as Marx wrote, but also legacy as such, legacy sans phrase. Well, since then, we have been concerned with a novelty in world history, a repetitive past purely in the form of value. The trend is for all inheritances to take the form of credit and to be anonymous. Pure availability acquired in the past. The dead may not return, but what is dead circulates everywhere as value that wants to preserve itself and continue exploiting itself. The concrete possession of the living by their ancestors has become abstract possession by self-exploitative values. This is why Marx was wrong in believing that the revolution of the 19th century could not begin with itself until it, quote, stripped away all superstition about the past, end quote. In reality, the 19th and 20th centuries brought superstition about the past to its highest generalised form, the universal world form. From then on, past meant having created values that could be further exploited. Past is only another word for the history of creation of value. Value became superstition, Sam's phrase. Wherever values are systematically exploited, the universal standard becomes dominated by ghostliness, and the earth becomes the haunted castle for the gentleman in grey. The past, acting in the name of values to be exploited, prepares to strike out in revenge on all subsequent life. Owing to the rule of value, the conquest of the present by the abstract past assumes planetary dimensions. Capital uses inexorable power to create an ontological greenhouse effect on Earth, in bank accounts, and in our brains. This is the context in which philological museology could express the essence of its subject for the first time. The museums and world exhibitions of the 19th century were nothing but stages, markets and trade fairs for the values that humans produced in every time and place. Serving the epiphany of value, that is the real function of the fevered exhibition activities that have played the chorus in recent contemporary history, particularly since the Great Exhibition in London in 1851, from the mid-19th century onwards, the synchronisation of the worlds of labour and value by means of world's fairs, expositions universelles, or international exhibitions, had a special status in the self-creation of a globalised market. In terms of exhibition theory, what Heidegger called the age of the world picture corresponds to the age of the world's fair. For the organisers of these great events, the issue of whether the world can be presented and exhibited is not really a problem. As their work shows, they have faith in assembling all sorts of consumer goods on a large scale. Machines, tools, works of art, fashion articles, architecture and ideas, everything in fact that makes the world of today the world we know. 
For the people organising these shows, the world's ability to be exhibited depends solely on at least one specimen of everything that belongs to the concrete world of value being presented at the fair. Like in a capitalist Noah's Ark, the world's fair is a platonic heaven of thought, a general assembly of values, and anything that can be sent on tour as movable goods can take part in it. One thing is clear about these gigantic spectacles. It is not the museum that makes the exhibition, but the exhibition, the museum. In some ways, the museum is only what is left standing from the exhibition. As we can see from the example of the megalomaniacal follow-up plans for the Paris Exposition Universelle of 1900, the idea was to leave a dozen pavilions standing on the banks of the Seine and turn them into museums. Headed by a museum with a retrospective overview of all previous world's fairs, followed by a museum of comparative education, a peace museum, a museum of comparative history, a museum of hygiene and experimental sciences, a public museum of fine arts, a museum of sea travel, fishing and arctic exploration, a museum of scholarly societies, congresses and bibliography, a museum of oceanography and experimental zoology, a museum of sports, artisanship, metallurgy and mineralogy and an archaeological museum. The complacent hubris of these plans, which were launched in a press campaign in Paris, shows that the spread of capitalization and the cataloguing of the world, like an inventory, are broadly parallel processes. The consumer world casts its shadow over everything else and forces it to accept the mode of being of something worth knowing at the very least. Real value, market value and knowledge value mutually reflect each other. Bouvard and Pécuchet celebrate their world citizenship in the museum. They begin the thousand-year empire of the petty bourgeois and declare what is worth knowing as national property. It is more than coincidence that patrimony, patrimoine, again, pardon my French, or lack thereof, it is more than coincidence that patrimoine is the key concept of present-day French museology. The eternal French citizen is a pensioner of humanity for whom world history has shrunk to the National Library and the earth to a colonial museum. The educated middle-class citizens of the Belle Epoque in Paris knew that the status of their metropolis as a world-class city was closely tied to their role as the, as the city of the world's fair. We experience most clearly what the world actually is at the places where people will have most strongly believed in and practiced the idea that the world as a whole can be exhibited and represented. In the representative world capitals of the modern age in Europe and America, twilight of the museum in the past decade has obviously revived at least the first idea from the 1900s that we mentioned. The reflective process of commemorating the world's fear that was already suggested at that time inevitably had to return someday. This explains why the 1970s we have been moving towards the, this explains why since the 1970s we've been moving towards the museum to top all museums. Meanwhile, since 1983, to be precise, we have obtained an overview of the series of 27 great economic and artistic events that fall into the category of a world's fair 
with the help of an Exposition des Expositions Universelles that was held from July to December 1983 in the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris. It was extensively documented, of course, in the accompanying Book of World Expositions. Uh, Book of World Exhibitions. This Expo des Expos was an important recognition that capital's powerful mechanisms of synchronization form a Gesamtkunstwerk, a total work of art, and a, a worthy topic for a museum themselves, and can be exploited as exhibition value. Anybody who had believed, however, that this kind of enterprise would bring recognisable progress in the discussion of how far it is possible to exhibit the world would have been bitterly disappointed by the results. Simply applying the exhibition to itself does not clarify the nature of the exhibition, and the problem of exhibiting the world will be even more distorted than previously by a history of world's fears flooded with images. Well, this is hardly surprising, of course. No business wants to be discontinued. Exhibiting value objects and highlighting exhibits will continue to be the darkest side of the exhibition business. Just as the production of visibility stubbornly persists as the invisible element in the process of photo technology. The exhibition as an event presenting pieces of evidence is a completion of what Heidegger called modern inframing. And the time is ripe for considerations on inframing, which will unavoidably lead to questioning the process of exhibiting. What is Aletheia in the world of world exhibitions? What is unconcealment mean in the age of its technical reproduction? What does exhibiting the world have to do with the beginning of the world itself into which we, as human beings that have come into the world, blink like newborn babies looking into the light? If the world is an exhibition and a museum, what force inside us is pushing us towards the exit as if there were something outside that was free from the pressure to be on show and the crush for parking spaces? There is probably no real outside for us. What is left for us is a place on the threshold between inside and outside, between the museum and its opposite. And only at this place, looking back at the world that arose and was exhibited and blinking forward into nothingness that allows everything, can we see ourselves as inhabitants of something that cannot be exhibited. <laughs>